So, um, if, if you're here for the first time today, just want to let you know that this, this year as a church, we have this whole theme going on, Every Giant Must Fall. And so throughout the whole year, all of our little teaching series that we're doing based on the Bible are looking at some of the big giants that we face and how God, through Christ, enables us to defeat those giants. And uh, last week, we kicked off a new teaching series uh, that's all about looking at the cross of Christ. And what we're exploring through this series is how what Jesus did on the cross defeats ultimately the biggest giants we face of all. Our giants of sin and suffering and struggle, but the biggest giant of all, which is death itself. And so Kate kicked off last week. And this morning we're, we're looking at how the cross of Christ rescues us. And so our whole theme this morning is rescue. And, uh, and as I was uh, thinking about uh, preparing for this over the, the weeks leading up to today, like, I don't know about you if you've ever stopped to think about the cross. It raises some very big questions. Like, have you ever asked this question? Like, if God is so loving and God is so powerful, then why, why did Jesus like, even need to die on the cross? Like, why couldn't God just forgive us? Like, why was it necessary for God to go through such a humiliating and agonizing and torturous kind of death. Why was the cross necessary? And then here's another thing. I, if, if you're in any sense a historian, you'll know that throughout history and still today, men and women, Christian men and women, have died for their faith. The, the history of the last 2,000 years is littered with Christian martyrs right from the very first century. Stephen was the first person, we read his story in the book of Acts, who was executed for his faith. And yet when you look at how Stephen faced death and how many Christian martyrs have faced death, they face it with confidence and peace. And yet Jesus, on the night before he was to be crucified, did not have peace. Like in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, he is feeling tortured, he is wrecked emotionally, he he is committed to go to the cross, but he prays to the Father, if there is any other way for us to do what we need to do here than the cross, that would be good. Like why? What, What was it that happened on the cross that was so terrible? That it caused Jesus in great anxiety to literally sweat drops of blood. What was happening there? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? What happened to him that the mere thought of it was agony for him? And how does what he did on the cross rescue us? And do we even need rescuing it anyway? That's what we're going to be looking at in the next five and a half hours. (laughs) Just checking you're listening. Just relax. See, time and time again, the writers uh, of the New Testament particularly, with lots of allusions to it in the Old Testament, they, the writers through many multiple scriptures, we could have literally spent the whole morning just reading various verses of the New Testament. They reveal, they remind, and they reinforce what the cross is all about. We're going to just read now some, some uh, classic verses about the cross on the screen. This, if, if you've never read the Bible before, the Bible has the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament, it begins with the story of Jesus through four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then there's a book called Acts, which tells the story of the church and how it began. And then the rest of the New Testament is is our our letters that are written to Christians in their newfound faith. 
much of which is written by a guy called Paul. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4. And uh, why don't we read this together? If you can read it on the screens with me. So this is Paul speaking, and he says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Jesus died, Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead, third day, just as the scriptures said. I'll try to read what's in front of me as well. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, read this with me. Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. And then again, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 to 6. John writes, all glory, read with me, all glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. And then Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, read with me nice and loud. Jesus cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And then finally, 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Anyone pleased about any of those verses that we just ran around? But maybe you're looking and thinking, well, what does all that mean? It's a good question. What do they all mean? Last time when uh, Kate kicked off this series, she reminded us that in the opening chapters of the Bible, we discover our true identity and purpose when we look at those opening verses in Genesis. We discover in terms of the real story of what's going on in the world that we were lovingly and intentionally created in the image of God to know God, to live with God, and to reflect God into the rest of the world. But humanity has rejected God. And ultimately, friends, that's what sin is. Sin is not just doing a few naughty or bad things. That's not what sin is. Sin is our rejection of God as our life giver, as our saviour, and as our Lord. Sin is ultimately idolatry. It is where we worship and prioritise the created things rather than the creator. Sin is our rejection of God. And out of that rejection of God, sin is our refusal to live the life that God created us to live. And so we miss the mark. We fall short of all we were created to be and do. And as a result of that, as a result of our rejection and refusal of God, God's harmony, God's wholeness, God's peace in the whole of creation is broken. And instead we see death and darkness all around us. And we are trapped. We are enslaved. And we are incapable of rescuing ourselves. I mean, think about it. With all of the marvels and the wonders of modern technology, with all of those things, mankind has not yet been able to find the perfect solution through the perfect person to the suffering of all humanity. There are loads of good things that are going on in the world, but you and I both know this world is broken, badly broken, darkness and death all around us. And we cannot save ourselves. And we cannot save ourselves because we all battle with this thing called sin. Sin is utterly destructive. 
And that's why it's no surprise that when you look at the Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, what you see is that clearly God hates sin. God hates sin. Sin makes God angry, really angry, and rightly angry. But I have two sons, Andy and Dan, they're 25 and 22, Andy's uh, on the front row, Dan's up in Liverpool at the moment, and let me tell you, like, if someone hurts my boys, I'm going to get a bit upset. How many parents in the house know what I'm talking about? Like, if someone hurts your kids, I'm going to get a bit upset, and like, if you really hurt them, I'm going to get, I might even get a little bit mad. If you hurt my boys, because I love my boys with my own life. And if someone hurts my boys, I am angry about that because I hate to see my boys hurting. And the amazing story that's really going on in the world is that God loves us and he hates to see us hurting. He hates sin and he can't ignore it, so it's got to be dealt with. Because if God just turned a, a blind eye to, to sin, if he just said, oh, it doesn't matter, then like, how would we feel about that? If, if God just looked at the brokenness and the mess of our lives and said, well, it doesn't really matter that they're hurting. It, it doesn't really matter that this is destroying them. It doesn't really matter that they're suffering. Like, What kind of loving God would be like that? He loves us. He hates sin because sin keeps us from him. Sin has to be dealt with. The, the consequences have to be paid. The power of sin has to be broken. Its influence has to be defeated. God relentlessly hates sin and he relentlessly loves people. What will he do? What will he do? Well, over a thousand years before Jesus uh, was here, so way over a thousand years, If you go into your Bibles uh, later on, you'll see in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, we're introduced to this character, a guy called Abraham. And and God calls Abraham and says to Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And I'm going to bless that nation, and that nation will bless others, and actually the ultimate blessing will come through that nation, which is Jesus himself. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And Jesus comes through that line into the world, blessing us through that people. And, and, and in Genesis 15, if you go and have a look, God reiterates the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And, and when two parties came together in agreement, they would do something called cutting a covenant. And so I'm not going to read it. You'll go and look at it later. But basically, to cut a covenant would basically be this. You would get some animals, and you would kill those animals. Sorry to the vegetarians. You would kill those animals. You would cut those animals in half. You would lay either side. And then each party would walk through the cut animals. And they would essentially make a promise. They would say, I agree to keep my side of this agreement. And if I don't keep my side of this agreement, then may I be torn apart like these animals on either side. And then the other person would walk through and say, and I agree to keep my side of this agreement, this covenant. And if I don't do it, then may I be torn apart just like the animals on either side. Now, if you look at what happens in Genesis 15, it starts like that. God makes the covenant. He makes the promise. He says to Abraham, and I'm going to bless you and I want good things for you and... and uh, and then they, they say, well, let's cut a covenant. And so they, they kill the animals. There's a cow, there's a sheep, and there's um, another one as well. And, uh, and they uh, lay the sides. But then something different happens. 
Because then what happens is God himself and God alone walks through between the cut animals. Abraham doesn't walk through. And when God's doing that, what he's saying to Abraham is something absolutely mind-blowing. He's saying to Abraham, Abraham, I promise to keep my promise to you to bless me. And if I don't keep it, which is impossible, God can't break his promises, then may I be torn apart by these animals. And Abraham, if you can't keep it, then may I again be torn apart like these animals. That if you can't keep this promise, then I will substitute myself for you that you don't have to pay the price, the consequences. If you cannot do this, then I will. And when God does this is in Genesis 15, he's pointing to the cross. How can God judge sin in us and also in love pardon us? And the answer is by becoming a divine substitute. Jesus is the substitute who receives the penalty so that we, the sinner, can receive the pardon. Jesus is the substitute who receives the penalty so that we, the sinner, can receive the pardon. We know that mankind, humanity, should face the consequences of our rejection and rebellion against God. We should do that. God shouldn't have to pay the price. We're the one that stuck our fingers up at him. And in Jesus, mankind has faced the consequences of it because Jesus is God who has become fully man. He is our representative as fully man. And yet only God ultimately is perfect and powerful enough to face those consequences. And so in Jesus, those consequences are fully paid because despite the fact that God is fully man, uh, Jesus is fully man, he is also fully God. In Jesus, we find fully God, fully man, paying the consequences of our sin. Is everyone with me so far? John Stott put it this way. He said, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own anger by bearing on his own self through Jesus Christ the brokenness and sinfulness of all humanity. Write this down. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. Jesus, fully God, fully man, broken into human history, becoming a man who can suffer and feel pain and ultimately die. But it raises the question, like, but why? Why such an agonizing death? Why did it have to be so bad? And the answer, my friends, is because that's how bad sin is. We might not like to think of it that way, but that's how destructive sin is. That Jesus in this moment, with, with the shadow of Genesis 15 behind him, on on the cross was declaring to the whole of humanity, I will be torn apart so that I can put you back together again. That's the power of the cross. That's how bad sin is. Like, look at this uh, photograph that's coming up on the screen. This is a a cigarette packet, and you'll know that over recent years, they've changed cigarette packets, haven't they, so that they actually put the images of of the sickness on. So this is a healthy heart, um, a healthy lungs next to a a diseased lungs, a smoke-riven, heavy smoker's lungs, as if to say, look at this, like, this is the consequences. This is the devastating effect of you smoking, with the idea that you won't do that. Of course, the reality is, when we look at those pictures, if you are a smoker, and this is not a sermon about smoking, but if you look at that stuff then you kind of you look at it you think well maybe that won't happen to me and it just doesn't feel 
like it's our reality. But, but that's, we know, that is the effect. If you smoke loads and loads and loads, that is the consequence of smoking on your lungs. Well, well I want to show you just in a moment what the devastating effects of sin are like. What the consequences of sin. I want to show you in a moment just how serious sin is, how terrible it is, how awful it is for your mind, body, and soul to every single part of your life for all eternity. Sin looks like this. That's what sin looks like. And, and, and as you gaze upon that picture, let's just be honest, that is... That is Hollywood's best attempt at the worst thing that could happen. The reality is that Jesus would have looked far worse than that. The scripture says that when people looked at him, he was so badly beaten that actually it was hard to know he was even a man. You couldn't recognize him because he was so badly beaten. And the truth as well is he wouldn't have a, you know, all our nice pictures of Jesus with a loincloth. That wouldn't have happened. You were completely naked on the cross. You weren't actually raised up very high. You would be at a level or eye level because that meant that as people could pass by and they could literally spit in your face and mock you. The, the cross was agonizing. It was humiliating. Like if you're on the cross for a long time, that means you're going to go to the toilet a lot. It was humiliating. And in many other ways I couldn't even say on a Sunday morning with a mixed crowd. This image that you see, it speaks to us about how serious sin is and how much God loves you. That he would be willing to be torn apart so that he can put you back together again. He can put you back together again. Many of you will know my good friend Pete Gilbert, who speaks in this church quite a lot. He's kind of my mentor. And, and Pete tells this story. Some of you have heard me tell this story of um, when, when his first child, Freddie, was just a baby. He, um, his, his wife, Nikki, said to Pete, like, I need to go out and do some shopping. Will you be okay to look after Freddie? It was going to be the first time he was left at home alone. So he was like, I'm a man. Of course I can do this. It's fine. And so, uh, so Nikki goes out, and, uh, and so Freddie and Nikki are there together, baby and father. And it's all good, it's all good fun, and, but after a while, little Freddie gets a bit grisly, and so he's thinking, okay, she needs a feed, and so there's some, some express milk, and so he kind of gives her a feed, and kind of she's better, and, and then she gets a little bit more grisly and a little bit more cry, and, and, uh, and needs a change, he deals with all of that, and now she's still a bit more grisly, and in fact, it's getting worse. And, uh, and so he takes her upstairs and he's walking around the upstairs of the house with her and, and she's getting more and more antsy. And, and then he realizes he can hear that Nikki is coming home. He can hear the car driving up. He's like, well, I, I don't want to look like a bad husband and father. I want to show that I can, I can do this thing. And so he, um, he, he goes into the bedroom and he lies down on the bed and he's got little baby uh, Freddie and he's throwing her up and down and catching her and throwing her up and down and catching her. Now she's loving it. She's smiling. It's, it's all good. And he's thinking, this is fantastic. And, and he can hear Nikki coming up the stairs and he's thinking, this is going to be a great moment. You know, we're all laughing. This is incredible. And that, at that moment, at that moment, Freddie's face suddenly turns and then she proceeds to vomit straight into his mouth. Straight into his open mouth. And, and all this happens so quickly, and, and he can almost hear the, he can hear the door, and he's thinking, What, what am I going to do? Like, you know, here I am, you know, she shot, he shot, he's got this vomit in his mouth. So what does he do? He swallows it. <laughs> now you are wondering, 
what has this possibly got to do with Jesus on the cross? And of course, the answer to that, friends, is that, if you'll forgive the analogy, that when Jesus died on the cross, he took all of the consequences of our rejection and refusal of God that resulted in darkness and death. He took all of that stuff on that keeps you from being with God. He took it on the cross and he swallowed it. He swallowed it. And if you're sitting here and thinking, that is disgusting, you're right, it's disgusting. The truth is, it is devastating. It is devastating. That the sinless, perfect saviour would take on the mess of our sin because of his great love for us. I can imagine in the spiritual realm when they tied Jesus up to a stone post, cruel Roman soldiers grabbed their cat of nine tails, this whip, and they began to beat him as those men were laughing that Satan was going, yeah, beat him with cancer. Beat him with multiple sclerosis. Beat him with anxiety. Beat him. And when those same soldiers got a crown of thorns and they forced it on his head, and the demonic realm went, yeah, crown him with suffering. Crown him with loneliness. Crown him with divorce. Crown him. And when it came to that part where they they nailed him to the cross, the demonic realm, I can imagine, shouted, yeah, nail him down so he cannot escape. And hoist him up and then open his mouth and pour in guilt and pour in shame and pour in unforgiveness and pour in selfishness. Have you had enough yet, Jesus? Do you want to call out? Do you want to call out to your father to rescue you? Have you had enough yet? Do you really think you can do this? Do you think you can follow through this? And Jesus in that moment cries in the spirit, more. Okay, pour in, pour in addiction. Pour in lust. Waterboard the Christ with the vomit of the world. Pour in greed. Pour in hatred and jealousy. Pour in bitterness and violence. Pour in darkness. Let's see if he can take death itself. Pour it in. No wonder, friends, Jesus sweat blood the night before. You see that moment on the cross when we see, you know, Jesus cries out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? We misunderstand what's going on there. There's that little line in a song that we've sung, we don't sing it anymore, that says the father turned his face away. Friends, that is rubbish. The father didn't turn the face away. Where's the father? He's on the cross with the son. God can't separate himself. God was on the cross, father, son, and spirit dying in the form of man through Jesus Christ. When Jesus was crying out that immortal cry, Father, Father, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? He was feeling the effects of what man will feel like when he is saturated in death and darkness. When you feel like you're forsaken, even though the father was saying to the son, I'm right here. 
God cannot forsake himself. On the cross, Jesus consumed the vomit of the whole of creation so that the penalty would be paid and that you and I would be pardoned. This is called good news. And so the cross declares four things to us today. It declares, firstly, no consequences. It declares that you don't have to face the consequences of refusing and rejecting God. God has faced those consequences himself through the God-man, Jesus Christ. That means you can be forgiven. And it's why we read in Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he was hung on the cross. He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. Not only that, the cross declares no chains. You see, when you and I sin, when we reject and we refuse God, we give power to things that were never supposed to have a power over us. And so we become enslaved to jealousy and addictions and other idols, anger, hatred, even enslaved to sickness and ultimately death itself, the biggest giant of all. And yet when Jesus died on the cross, when he swallowed the vomit of our brokenness, he he swallowed all of that rubbish so that it doesn't have to have a hold over us anymore. He swallowed it. So you don't have to. And when he rose again from the dead, he was clearly declaring to all of those powers, your day is done. Your day is done. So we can experience that freedom too. That's why Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Or as John writes, as we read, Revelation 1, 5 to 6, All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. The cross declares no consequences. You are forgiven because Jesus has paid the consequences of our sinfulness on the cross. The cross declares no chains. You are set free because Jesus has defeated the powers that enslave us. The cross declares, thirdly, no guilt. Because through the cross, the sinless Savior died for sinful people. He took on the guilt of our rejection and refusal of God. And as a result of that, God declares us not guilty. Not guilty. I remember a few years ago, I had a bit of a bad year when it comes to driving. I know this will surprise some of you. And in one year, I got nine points on my license. And I also had three little accidents. It was a bad year. And so when it came to my insurance premium being renewed, I had the embarrassment of my insurance company uh, writing to me saying, we will not insure you anymore. You are too high a risk. I know. Me. So I had to scour the internet to find other companies. And from now on, as a result of what happened there, I have to tick this box that I thought I would never have to tick. It says, have you ever had insurance refused? Yes. For the rest of my life. And yet, on the cross, Jesus took my record of failure and brokenness, rejection and refusal, and it was nailed to him so that I would be free from it. It's like it never existed anymore. 
It's why Paul writes in Colossians 2.14, Jesus cancelled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. If you say yes to Jesus today, he declares, you're not a sinner, you are a saint. You are clean. You are forgiven. You are holy. You are righteous. That is who you are because the record that was on you has been taken off you and put on him and the perfect record that was on him has been put on you. That's the divine exchange. The cross cross declares no consequence, no change, no guilt. And finally, the cross declares no rejection. That through the cross, not only are we guilt-free saints, but wonderfully we become sons and daughters. The family of God. We're not rejected by God. We are loved and we are accepted by God. We are reconciled to the Father because of what Jesus did. We are citizens of God's kingdom. We are members of God's family. We are the body of Christ. It's why Peter writes, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Friends, that this morning is what the cross is all about. That's why it's so necessary. That's why he rescued us. The guy that you see here is a guy called James Harrison. And in January 2018, the Australian Red Cross paid tribute to the man that they called the man with the golden arm. He was a retired railway worker. And over the course of 60 years, he gave 1,173 blood donations. And because of the uh, the rare antibody that he has in his blood, which helps about 17% of pregnant women in Australia, they estimate he saved the life of at least 2.4 million babies because he gave his blood. We all know this. The life is always in the blood. The life is always in the blood. And if James saved a few million lives through giving his blood, then how much more has the saviour of the whole of creation saved all of his creation through giving his blood for us this morning? Let me finish where I started. Let me remind you, we were lovingly and intentionally created by God to know him to live with him, to reflect him in the world, to join in with what he's doing, to see heaven break out all over the world, to be good news people in a a bad news world. But we rejected God as life giver, saviour and Lord and we refused to live the life that he called us to live and as a result, darkness and death has entered into the world. But God loves us so very much. That upon the cross, Jesus consumes all of that stuff upon himself and he dies and he defeats it. He swallows it and comes up again three days later to say, it's defeated. It has no hold on you. And because of that, if you and I say yes to his invitation, that yes, you did this for me, God, then he declares over you today, no consequence, no guilt. No rejection. Thank you, Father. And no chains. But it is an invitation. You can say no. You can say no.
You can walk away this morning and say, I don't think that's for me. And, and everyone has that choice because love always gives a choice. But Jesus says to us, if you say no, then the road that you're taking is a road that will lead only to darkness and death itself. The road that leads to life. The road that needs to no consequence, no chains, no rejection, and no guilt is the life that says, yes, you are my life giver. You are my saviour and Lord. You were torn apart so that I could be put back together again. Why don't we close our eyes for a moment? And just in all the things that I said, like, what is God saying to you in this moment? We're going to continue in worship. We're going to worship this God who gave his all for us in just a moment. The wonder of the cross. The wonder of the sacrifice. But right now in this moment, I want to speak to anyone who has not said a full and first yes to Jesus. If you're here today and you have not said, yes, Jesus, forgive me. I want you to be my life giver, my Savior and Lord. In a moment, with every Christian in this house praying for courage to come, I'm going to ask you in just a moment to put your hand up and I'm just going to agree with you in prayer. I'm not going to embarrass you that today's your day. For receiving all of these things, God's declaration over you. No consequence, no chains, no guilt, no rejection. Forgiven. And so I just ask, if you, if you want to, right where you are, invite Jesus to be your life saver, your life giver, your saving Lord. Could you look at me and put your hand up right where you are to anyone in this house? Great, thank you. See that hand, you can put your hand down. Anyone else? Anyone else here today? I know it's a courageous thing to do, but it's the most important thing to do. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God. And so here's my prayer that that you can pray. Father God, thank you that you loved me so much that you died on a cross for me. Thank you that you rose again to show that every bit of darkness and death in this world and in my life is consumed and dealt with and done with. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And help me to live the rest of my life knowing you, doing life with you, and reflecting you in the whole of creation. Help me to be one of your good news people in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.